0: Hello, you're listening to Copyright Waffle, the podcast that brings you a nice cup of copyright enlightenment with a slice of cake. My name's Chris Morrison. And my name's Jane Secker. We're a couple of self-confessed copyright geeks and we run the website
1: copyrightliteracy.org. We're on a mission to make learning about copyright fun, engaging and empowering.
0: And we're your hosts for Copyright Waffle, an archive of amazing chats with copyright experts and interesting people whose lives have been touched by copyright. And this episode is the second in a two-parter where we speak to the unequivocal official number one top
1: Beatles brain of the universe, Mark Lewison. I think he probably just about stomached that description. uh, I think so.
0: I think so. Um, He did say he didn't have an official title, if you remember. Anyone who
1: wants to hear that should
0: refer back to episode one. They should. But we get a fascinating insight in this episode into Mark's archive. We learn a bit about his research process. Um, we learn a bit about uh, how he acquired quite a lot of his collection mm. as well and what he hopes to do with it.
1: Yeah, so it's it's definitely one for the librarians and archivists, but certainly not exclusively. Mm. Um, we do get to poke around in various boxes in his archive. We find out about John Cura's Telesnaps, something I didn't know about. No. He's got some fascinating copyright implications.
0: Mm.
1: How he fuses oral history interviews with documentary evidence. That was your question, wasn't it?
0: It was. And we discussed the barriers that copyright sometimes presents to his work. And here's some really interesting copyright news related to the Northern Song saga. Absolutely. So... In the end, I do get to have my fanboy moment. Uh, there
1: there are some signing of books at that point. Um, and normally we do ask people what their favourite cake was. We didn't ask him that, that, no. that question in the same way. But there is, there is some cake-related activity, isn't there?
0: I think so. I think there's some empirical evidence that Mark's quite keen on my banana loaf. Indeed. So let's pick up the action with Mark showing us around his incredible archive... Which is the biggest collection of Beatles-related information in the world?
1: Oh, before we let everyone go, yep, I did want to talk about that small amount of electromagnetic oh, interference.
0: It was so minor, nobody will notice. It was.
1: It's that little it <laughs> you get from a mobile phone. It's only there for a tiny bit. But what? I think it's important that everybody knows that it is there, and it's not them or their headphones no. or their device. No, okay,
0: okay. No one will notice it except you, Chris, but... Okay. Well, they'll
1: all notice it now.
0: Yes, they'll be listening out for it. Okay. It's the highlight of the podcast.
1: Over to...
0: The chat. Copy, um, wipe, all right. It
2: may seem relatively well organised, but it could be so much better organised. Yeah. I'm just don't have the time to if I could divide myself into several parts, one part of me would be filing and organising while the other part is getting on with the real work. Yeah, yeah, But yeah. instead I just get on with the real work because it's so pressing.
0: Yeah.
2: Uh, and this place, though organised to a point, is nowhere near as organised as I'd like it to be. You
0: need a librarian or an archivist,
2: don't you? Uh, yes, yes, I, I really do. It, it would be of immense benefit to yeah. me to have, to have that. So on the floor above this, is that's where my desk is, that's where I work. Uh, and that has uh, multiple more aisles of books. Cool. Shall we,
0: so
2: we look? Boxes. Can we look? Yeah, you're welcome to. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's
1: exciting. a uh, spiral staircase. Okay, here we go. So, is this where you spend most of your time? Do you yeah. have a sort of nine to five regime, or is it draw you in much more
2: than that no I tend to work from the moment I get up to the moment I go to bed okay with with some time off for good behavior but um <laughs> so uh, yeah six something to whatever fairly late is what a beautiful
0: yeah. space to work in yeah as well. yeah just like right, I don't know the, the yeah. kind of the whole atmosphere in here mm. so we've got books and
1: we've got Things look like manuscripts and, yeah.
2: uh, and sort of These are stuff. all the music papers, British music papers, from 1960 to 73. I also have m- others downstairs from 48 to 92. So NME and Melody Maker and... Record Mirror, okay. Disc, Sounds yeah. and some of the trades as well, Record Retailer, Music Week and so on. Are, are they complete the records stage. of all of them? Or just these the are, these, these boxes that you see here, they are complete. And um, they're a master, even though. So were you a lot of those? them have now been read.
0: Were you buying them? Actually, I
2: was buying some of them at the time, but also not keeping them. Okay. I tend to be a keeper of things, but I wasn't as a child. I wasn't keeping those as a young person, um, but I've acquired them right. as as a library, um, rather like I have a set of Radio Times, uh, which goes back to the beginning. Actually, which is now ninety nine years of Radio Times, and I I buy those. Right. To to maintain the collection. Right. Wow. Yeah.
0: Wow.
2: And these various aisles here; these are all books on the Beatles.
0: Yeah. This
2: is I mean, there is, there is so, would is you say you've got every single number. book? I used to. It. I used to be able to say that, yeah. um, but it, it's gone a bit bananas in the last two three years with with self publishing.
0: Yeah. Mm. Okay.
2: And um, I see a lot of books now on Amazon and other book websites. That I just think.
1: Ah. But shouldn't there be? A sort of know. legal deposit where anyone writes a Beatles book, it should come to you. No. Shouldn't we get that encoded in legislation? <laughs> well, it's a very
2: nice thought. As it, as it is, I buy them, because uh, I don't have any right to be sent anything for nothing.
0: Oh, well,
2: so um, so I buy them. So. But it is
0: like a national collection, essentially.
2: It is a, it's an important collection. Mm. Mm. And in fact, I, was, I very rarely go on Twitter, but I was on it last night, and someone had asked the question of the Twitter public, what Beetle book are you reading at the moment? Mm. And I just scrolled quickly down through the responses mm. and it was amazing what a disparate variety of, of books, most of them very good, mm. well, not all, but most mm. of them, uh, are being read by people. Mm. And it, it kind of, even though I live amongst these books all the time, it was interesting to be reminded of just how many the variety. there are, the mm. variety of them particularly, yeah. Mm.
1: yeah. Well, I am, I'm reading TuneIn at the moment, you know, I was doing I was part of the research, but also after seeing you at the literary festival, thinking, actually, I'm re- this is fantastic. This is amazing. <laughs> I'm ready to go deep beetle again. After having for a few years thinking, I don't want to yeah. overdo it, and now it's like no, I, I it's fa- it's absolutely fantastic. Yes, it's, it's
2: never less than rewarding to go deep beetle. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I I live that way, and uh, mm-hmm. it's never I never get bored of it.
0: No, no. 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 Well, that's what. Doing research is all about, I
2: think, yeah. isn't it? Getting lost in it. Yes, yes. I, I, I wouldn't want to be researching something that bored me, and not if you go as deep as this, but mm. being that it is endlessly, and I do mean endlessly interesting, mm. um, there's no chance of boredom. No, no. none no. at all. No. All that lot, though, that's archive boxes, okay. which if I had more filing cabinets would go in. That's all my work. So that's what, all my projects of the last so
1: when that forty years or so. The Beatles anthology. That's the work you were doing with yeah. Apple on the anthology.
2: Yeah, there's about four archive boxes in there, which is the entire in in that stack, uh, which is the history of the Beatles anthology as I experienced it. It's all the faxes, and letters, and file notes, and proofs, and you know, when you're deeply involved in a project, you, there's a lot of paperwork, yeah. and that's I keep incredible. it all. I keep it all, so yes, and all, 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 the work I've done is is there. But actually, these days I have more on my computer than than you see in physical material now, in physical form. I used to think that I would print everything out on my computer uh, in order to file it properly, and now I'm thinking I should be scanning all my paper stuff and just keeping it on the computer.
0: So you've got quite an immense digital archive as well. Vast. Yeah. Vast, yeah.
2: which which would probably double everything that you see here. Wow. Yeah. I mean, hundreds of thousands of documents. Yeah. Mm.
1: It, yeah. Is this the full archive or is there some elsewhere now? This is it. This is it. Okay. okay. And like you, 13.2 tonnes, is that right?
2: That's, yes. Gosh, when I moved out, when I, when I relocated from Hertfordshire to here, it was 13.2 tonnes. Right. So the removal men told me. Okay. They, they had a way of weighing it before they put it onto their truck. Um, and the
1: survey of the house said it's okay you can bring this stuff here the floor is the floor not going to give way
2: i'm it's it's trial and error i mean i think it'll be all right it's now been in this has been here for nearly two years it wasn't here immediately that i came here but it's been here about two years so i think if it was going to go it would have gone by now
0: yes yeah
2: mm.
1: Have you got that book? That's the one that's the really detailed analysis of the recording sessions from the technical point of view. The one that it's about eight hundred.
2: pounds Recording, eight hundred pounds. Probably had mean the, recording the Beatles by Kevin in... Ryan and Brian Keyhue. That'll that's be this the one. one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: Wow, that's <laughs> a weighty. That it's a
2: weighty tone. Do you want it to? Yeah.
0: Want
2: to feel that how. In weighted. itself,
0: probably could do the reinforced shelf, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so that, that where have you seen this book? Before? Uh,
1: it was at the Drill Hall Library. The Drill hole library, where oh, yeah, we have yeah, yeah, yeah. shared a library with Kent Christchurch in Greenwich, and they mm. have a center for music and audio technology there. And ah. The library said it's worth investing in that f- for that. It is, so people yeah. go, Oh, that's nice, I'll get that as a you know coffee table book, and then of course, <laughs> they find out how much.
2: Yes, well, and yeah, also, it was wow. limited edition, yeah. um, wow. it, it was self published by out? the authors, oh, about 10 years ago,
1: and it's it's kind of an art book almost in 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 the way that it does it's it's deeply deeply technical everything
2: about yes
1: beautiful
2: you're absolutely right everything about it is beautiful it is deeply technical and I'm not a technical person so that aspect of it kind of goes over my head but on the other hand if I have a question I know where to turn yeah and I also trust the authors that I don't trust every Beatles book author far from it but um I was able to observe the way they were going about this book and i knew that it was going to be right
0: Mm.
2: that it had the right standards of approach fantastic so a beautiful job uh not mass market it's probably not a mass market subject anyway Mm. not not this element of it not the microphones and i was going to say you're
0: interested in it because of your kind of sound recording yeah yeah uh, because i love the artificial double
1: tracking and the nature of the you know the the valve compressors that they were using and all that stuff if you've got some amazing pictures i can see yes of the technology
2: their own photography is beautiful of the equipment but also the archive photography research is very good um so in any picture of the Beatles in the studio they will actually not look so much at the foreground but at the background and say well that equipment there that is a so-and-so and that is a so-and-so and they'll tell you how it ended up being used and
0: the rs 140 the portable sound oh it's one on of my one, one of my favorite is it sound
2: never go anywhere components. without yeah. one
1: no um, you I, I have looked at it it's Most actually of quite
0: these... hurting my arms okay now, i just think you probably point have
1: been recreated as digital plugins for using the digital things and you can buy them all the one that makes it sound like your digital recording is actually going through mm. the the, the, the tape machine at, at Abbey Road um, mm. right. and like a plug-in that simulates yeah. the sound of George Martin's hand touching a control or something like that <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: it's, it's, it's flattering but, but also very strange that Yeah. because yeah. the Beatles themselves one of the, the key thing about the Beatles was that if there was a rule, they tried to subvert it.
1: And if there was something new, they would try it. What happened right at the end and the use of the synthesizers. Yes,
2: and... all the way through, in fact. But whatever, what, they always tested the thing to its, to its limit. They didn't just, one of the advantages of what they did was that they were, they found things out by experimentation, whereas it may possibly, I don't know, may be harder to find things out now because it's all possible mm. uh, to anybody. I, I, again I'm talking a bit blind because it's not quite my world but generally speaking when you're discovering things you're you're treading fresh turf mm. and when you've got the ability just to flick a switch then you're not necessarily going to discover no. something that hasn't been discovered before
1: and maybe that area for the next progression actually isn't recorded music mm. maybe recorded music popular music as we mm. see has matured as an art form and then has become like concert music sort yeah. of unable to innovate in a way that captures the mass Yes. Mass imagination, and it's, it's something else now that's yes. happening that's the next. Yes. It's not going to be a pop group.
2: Yes, I think you're probably right. Mm. But that doesn't, obviously, mankind is creative, and uh, especially musically. I mean, there are so many brilliant musicians out there that you can hear them in any pub now. People are so accomplished. Yeah. Uh, and, and of course, there's the ability now to study this stuff properly. Mm. Um, whereas in the Beatles days it was just more a hobby. It was an enthusiasm yeah. mm. that carried them forward rather than studied knowledge. Of course. Mm. Mm. Right, back down the
0: spiral stairs. This really is an incredible space, though. It's just amazing. I mean, yeah. it's difficult to imagine it as anything other than an archive now seeing it like this. It's yes,
2: and these these... Um, really lends The itself. shelving is, is, is very well installed. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it's, I don't know whether it's even movable anywhere else. So what have you
1: got in those boxes there? Let's have
2: a look. Um, film. So the bottom box on the floor there is box 35. That's got the BBC staff newspaper, Ariel... Right. from 1958 to 69 yeah and then it's got various loose issues of things like downbeats and Hit parade newsweek time vogue cinema today blah 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 this box here that's full of private eye and new yorker from the 1960s mm-hmm. this one is um those are Microfilms are microfiche, and I don't even have a reader anymore. Mm. And they are also John Cura's telesnaps. John Cura was a very interesting man who set up business just after the war when television recommenced in 1946. He devised a camera that was trained on the small screen of television. And because television then was entirely live and no one had the means of seeing afterwards what it had looked like, he took what he called telesnaps. Okay. And would then sell them, sometimes to the public, but mostly back to broadcasting organisations, BBC exclusively at that point, 46. I
0: have no idea about
2: this. Yeah, and his photographs, they're scattered now, there's no single collection, but I wrote an article about him. Yeah. Because I was so interested in the fact that he had preserved the images of what our TV used to look like. That's
1: fascinating. That's incredible.
2: And in the process of writing that article, I gathered from loads of different sources a great many telesnaps. I advertised for them and kind of pre-internet almost, but I got a lot of them. So are they standalone images or are they videos? They're they're stills. They're stills. They're stills stills in which you can see the television. You can, okay. see that you can see the, the, the shape of the screen with the rounded edges, the okay. rounded corners, I should say. Um, but he recorded, you know, he took pictures of a lot of broadcasts that don't exist in any other format. Oh. There oh. might be scripts and things like that, but he's got the images of them. And he sold them back to the broadcasters
1: themselves? He would did... sell
2: them to producers and yeah. to actors and actresses and, yeah. and directors and writers and anyone who had been involved in the making of the programme yeah. who might want to have a record of what it looked like.
1: And presumably, with my copyright hat on, nobody at the time would say, hang on, that's our programme. You're selling us back something that we already yeah. own and yeah. to have some kind of issue with it. Presumably, there was because there was no other way of recording it, people just accepted he'd done that and that he had a valid business model.
2: You've got it exactly right. If you go to the BBC's Written Archives, mm-hmm. which is in Caversham in Berkshire, which is, in for my money... I think the most important archive in Britain, certainly for anything that I ever do,
0: uh,
2: but I would argue for anything that anybody ever does, Um, then there are correspondence files about John Kira's activities in which questions just like that are asked. How dare this man (laughs) take our copyrighted material, photograph it without our permission, uh, and then make money from it. But, oh, by the way, PS, can we please buy some? (laughs) <laughs> and thank you for doing it
1: well that's always yeah the way isn't it it's yeah the, it's the here's the kind of theoretical legal position and then here's the pragmatic right we want that yeah we want to do this thing and so we accept yeah that somebody's doing something that arguably is not yeah above board
2: yes it, he did something that they hadn't actually considered viable or even or even considered at all so therefore they were taken aback by it but they could see the benefit of, of having it So I wrote an article about him. So that box there has quite a lot of John Cura's telesnaps in. That's a
0: fascinating box. Yeah. 37. Mm. Yeah,
2: and box 38. This has microfilms and microfiche and a whole load of TV scripts. There's a script for that. That was the week that was right on top there. An original script. Original Right. Yes, I've got quite a few original TV scripts. That's a, a camera a camera script. Okay. For that was the which was a live show on a Saturday night. So the, the, the content of the sketches is in there as well. How, first, how did you
0: um, acquire something like that
2: then? Uh, um, the script? How exactly did I get that one? It might. I mean. That's a good question. I'm not actually sure. It might have come. <laughs> Possibly came from the collection of a man called Dave Freeman, who was a scriptwriter, didn't work on TW3, but was a scriptwriter in television at that time and had quite a lot of scripts.
0: Right. And
2: I befriended John, I befriended Dave, rather, Dave Freeman, when uh, I was writing my biography of Benny Hill because he was Benny Hill's co-writer. And when he died, um, I picked up, I was given a lot of what David had. So right. that might be one of his or it might be from some other source entirely. No, actually that one is from a BBC radio producer. I befriended who left me a lot of stuff in his will. Oh wow! Mm, that's where that comes from.
0: It's an amazing way of mm. getting research collections, isn't it? Yeah. yeah.
2: I spend a lot of time less so these days, but I have done for consistently for decades, spend a lot of time going to see people who were involved in the act of creating something. Mm. And i Many times, most times, I will say, what's happening? And if they've got things, mm. if they've retained things from their collection, from their career, what's your plan for this when you're gone? You can't be afraid to bring the subject up because we're all going to die. So mm. let's, let's, let's face that one and say, what, where's that going to go when you die? That pile of papers there. And quite often people will say to me, oh, I, I don't know. I don't know. My children will probably throw it away so it's not interest of no interest to them and I always say well you've got to make a plan for it you absolutely have to make a plan for that otherwise it will be thrown away and it's a value it's not only a value for the fact that you did something very interesting and it's history of television or radio or whatever it might be but also it's a value to students and historians in the future who will want to access it absolutely. and if it's thrown away that's that so I and, and as a consequence, several people have said to me, "I'll leave it all to you." And I'm going, "Well, that isn't what I'm saying." I <laughs> it's don't an actually thing yeah. raise the point. Yeah.
1: Now over to you. Yes. You take yeah.
2: Responsibility. Well, they, they, they say, you know, well, you know, since you brought it up, it's yours, and it's, well, I'm I'm not actually saying that, but I mean, I, if you leave it to me, I will look after it. Yeah. But that isn't really what the point is. The point is, you must find a way of looking after. But it. But
0: I can see why you're kind of legacy then is kind of it's almost like you know it's just got more and more immense if you've collected stuff from other people it's not just the responsibility of now what you've collected Yeah, it's it's all those other people's
2: that's right and because I will be leaving my archive to a place of study I have been saying to people in recent years if you leave it to me it will still be it will be with it will be kept forever Mm. and it will be it might even have your name on it it could be you know the um the Peter Pilbeam collection, or... Peter Pillbeam collection within yeah. a greater collection. Mm-hmm. Peter Pilbeam was a BBC radio producer, based in Manchester, still alive, um, quite old now, um, but still alive. I'm glad to say uh, he produced um, pop music radio shows, aim, uh, out of BBC Manchester for national broadcast, and he therefore produ- He auditioned the Beatles. Uh, and produced their first four appearances on BBC Radio back in nineteen sixty two, and he kept notebooks. And when I went to interview him, he had his notebooks, and I said that very thing: "What are you going to do with these?" And he's ended up giving them to me, so I have the I have those, for example.
0: Fantastic! Mm. Yeah. So if mm. if if I can change the subject a little yeah. bit, and just conscious of the time as well, but you you as a researcher, how how did you kind of? You know, come to be a researcher in this way. I mean, we we heard a little bit about your story of working for the music magazine when you were a teenager. But you know, you 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 go so deep. You are effectively like you know, I think Chris said, a, a professor, an academic. Mm. You know, how you know is is that just through curiosity? Is it is it your absolute fascination with the subject?
2: Um y- Yes, it's it's both. The last two things you said are both relevant. It is curiosity and it's a curiosity that is unending because of my, because my interest in the subject is unending. Mm. Um, I find it, I find the Beatles are absolutely the stuff of life. I mean, truly um, bringers of great joy Mm. uh, to life. And 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 I'm not alone in thinking that. Obviously, I mean people have been thinking that now for sixty years, and it runs deep in the population, in the world population, uh, and quite genuinely so because it is the best of art, as I'm con- as far as I'm concerned. And my own thing is is quite simply that um, I like information and I like discovery, and I have an ability to find things and it it's perfect for this unending desire to learn as much as i possibly can about the world that this all happened in who these people were and how they did it and um all the processes so you end up knowing a whole lot more than you just know about the beatles um because as i always say they didn't exist in a vacuum so my knowledge is broad as well as deep mm. and um it it's it's just something that is is part of who i am mm. I was born with an ability to research. Yeah, Uh, so
0: you don't think you were taught it in some way. You think it's something you've just...
2: I certainly wasn't taught it. Yes, it's actually in my genes. I mean, as a a small child, I would go to public libraries and I would bristle if the librarian said to me, the children's section's over there. (laughs) Because I would go straight to the reference section to directories and encyclopedias and um, all sorts of almanacs and so on. And I would look things up and I would make notes about what uh, would be about cricket scores or football scores or the company that my dad worked for. I, I memorized information from phone books. I was just that kind of a child. Yeah. And you you can't be shown that you just go there of your own volition. Yeah. And so look, researching the Beatles, researching anything is second nature to me. But researching the Beatles is first nature. Because it goes hand in hand with the love that I have for them that was instilled in me as an infant.
0: Yeah, I so. think I'm. I'm also I'm really interested in the way you use documentary sources and then the way you use people and interviews with people and mm. maybe you could say a little bit about the the, the different approaches and you know, but the complementary um, yeah. use of those two different sources.
2: Yeah, I I, mean, I have trouble with material that's secondary source and these days even third source third length arm length down from original action uh, i tried to go to original sources wherever possible and even then you've got to be terribly careful the beatles is a subject that anyone who's had any association with it um, will have told their story about it so many times mm. because people are always asking them mm. didn't you have something to do with the beatles mm. or they're mentioning it because it's a boast and uh, and through that constant retelling comes in a, uh, a a gradual accumulation of things that didn't really happen, but it, it becomes part of what they remember somehow or other. We all know that one. We all know that the stories told and told and told and told pick up things that never really happened in the first place. Yeah. And so even when I interview people who were witnesses to events, I'm sceptical about what they tell me unless I unless I unless it feels right in the first instance, mm. um, based on everything I know, but also based on actual proof.
0: Right.
2: So um, with the, the, the three-volume history I'm writing, I have vast amount of documented research, which is, for me, the, the true truth, <laughs> the, the absolute kernel of the truth. Um, but then there's the colour that comes from people who were present at events telling you what occurred but if they don't actually naturally mesh together i won't trust the anecdote Mm. as much as i would like to and i do constantly read books where the authors don't have that high value of um, application about is this story right or not Mm. it's a good story put it in Mm. As you were talking
0: earlier when we were upstairs. Yeah,
2: and I I read other people's books and I read interviews with people and I go, oh, for God's sake, oh, for God's sake, (laughs) oh, for God's sake. Sometimes the word isn't God, you know. Um, It's something stronger because it's just like I can't bear it to read inaccuracies. And I'm fighting a losing battle with this three-volume history in that I'm trying to get the story right while it's so wrong it's becoming ever more wrong the Mm. internet has just Mm. fanned the flames on how wrong it is Mm. and everybody's got their point of view and a lot of those are wrong and I despair of all that and now while I'm writing this history of the Beatles Paul and Ringo are the last two Beatles still alive Mm. and they're getting it wrong and people are believing what they're saying and I'm thinking oh no don't say that (laughs) that isn't how it happened you know that's not how it happened Mm. Uh, and yet you're really embedding it into the history because it's you saying it, mm. you know. So, of course, it's going to be trusted. Um, but in reality, you know, not everyone 80 and 80 years and up remembers exactly what happened. No, you no. know, that's just a fact of life. Mm.
0: Mm,
2: mm. So um, I, I do feel like I'm losing the battle, but I will leave behind me um, if I get complete the trilogy before I go. Uh, th- what, as the far as I can tell, really did happen. Mm. And for those who read it, they will get the sense of it. And for those who just look at what's in the, on the internet, mm. they won't. Mm.
0: Mm. I mean, I think the, this this archive, you know, that we're in, it's just it is just an incredible resource. Yeah. You you talked um in when we saw you at the literary festival um last month we you said something about potentially wanting to make that archive available in digital format as well but i wondered do you think that would help because you could expose the source material then you know i don't know do you have thoughts of things like people putting um, material up onto wikipedia does it then level the playing field so that it's all out there
2: yeah i can't help but feel that um for those who bother to look below the surface, because on the internet, very few people do. I mean, who who goes, who goes to page three of Google results? Mm. You know, unfortunately that's the way it is. And I count myself in that as well. Um, the more I make available, um, or the more is made available, whether it's in my lifetime or afterwards, then the greater the possibility of people getting it right. Mm. Um, and learning from what really did happen, get, getting the true sense of everyone 's personalities and the the integration of events, which are too often looked at in isolation mm. um, is very important. The more that is available, the the greater chance we all stand of it being interpreted correctly, but it still won 't be, mm. but certainly the chance of it will improve and I, I would like to see my intention is that to leave this collection of beatles knowledge uh, information um to a place of study mm. um, because it, it needs to be available for students for other authors for anybody who's interested
0: Absolutely. and
2: it isn't just about the beatles because in the art of in the act of collecting knowledge on the beatles i collect so much more
0: yeah
2: to the left and to the right and in front and behind it um um, but eventually, I think um, for those who can't physically get to the library where it's situated, I think it, it ultimately all up available for everybody. Mm. Mm. And the, the the writers of these letters and the, the, the directors of the companies and all that—they're all going to be gone.
0: Mm.
2: You know, in the Beatles story, now most of the participants are gone. Mm. I mean, that is the reality of it. Events are now sixty plus years ago.
0: Yeah.
2: But might we find ourselves in a tricky period where
1: the main protagonists have gone? So Neil Aspinall, Derek Taylor, they can't make a decision themselves. It's now you have Apple and you've described you have the Apple board that have certain control over certain elements of the Beatle empire. Mm. Um in our world, in archives and libraries, we're trying to make collections available online all the time. And copyright, copyright is a big is barrier a big to that yeah. because... The stuff, particularly 20th century, there's a big hole in 20th century research because libraries tend to be quite risk averse and cautious. They don't want to put things up there unless yes. they're clear they've got the copyright holders permission. But that is an incredibly complicated and, and, and uh, time consuming process that often ends up not knowing who the copyright holder is. And we have these orphan works. So presumably I'm looking around your archive and thinking I'd imagine there's an awful lot here. That if an archivist was trying to put it online, a librarian they'd have to spend a lot of time. Do you yeah. foresee an issue actually with control by Apple or other? Because you know, this is such a commercially valuable area, isn't
2: it? It is. It is, and and uh, the Beatles Apple Company um, do still can do control a lot of rights, mm-hmm. and and they control what people can do, and and that's an understandable control as well. The fraction that what we see in the world in terms of activities around the Beatles are about a fraction of the things that could be if they allowed everything to occur. But they do. And they always have right from Brian Epstein's day onwards clamped down as much as possible. Brian Epstein as a manager of the Beatles was was quite brilliant in not overexposing them and in not not making them prey to over commercialization. It was very far sighted uh, policy at the time, which they were completely comfortable with um but there will come a time when everybody's gone and i don't know i mean you tell me what is the copyright in a piece of paper if 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 i've got a letter that was written in 1963 and the person who wrote it has died and the person who received it has died and the company is no longer in business Mm. is there copyright in that copyright for 70 years after the death of the author Mm.
1: so even for something that's an archival thing that was created at that point in time it actually will remain in copyright if it's unpublished. It will be in copyright until at least December the thirty-first, twenty thirty-nine, or seventy years after the death of the author, depending on which one comes later. So you, that's where libraries find themselves in this very difficult position, and that's
2: why they employ people like us to, to work through <laughs> yeah. those issues. But mm-hmm. if that individual was employed by a company, wouldn't the, com- the copyright rest in the vest on to- the company? Probably, probably, probably yeah.
1: in the company, but still, the duration is calculated on the death date of the author. So wow. it it, okay. it it's it's uh, that that's the way that and copyright law has expanded over the years and that that's one of the issues that we in in the library and education research world we're constantly saying to government actually shorter copyright terms help all these other things you mm-hmm. know you might say yeah. this Reserving is how people
0: heritage, people yes. make a living Absolutely. but
1: actually do you really need for there to be this protection long long after the
2: the, the person has actually died yeah. yeah. I, I'm not familiar with all, I mean, this is much more your specialist <laughs> subject yeah, than mine, yeah, yeah, and yeah. as you're describing, it's, it's clearly complex, I mean, yeah. very much complex. Um, it won't be my issue to worry about. No, um, I would like to make it all publicly available, but it, obviously the library or university that takes this will have to consider their own risk when they when they're putting things up and that is
0: what it will be it'll be about
2: a risk Mm.
0: managed sort of decision Uh, yeah there
2: are great quantities of documents already on the internet that probably aren't clear but then again Mm. there's a great deal of copyright violation on the internet full stop including my own work is being violated and, and i have to witness my own violations of my own intellectual property being violated but don't we all Mm. don't we all these days i mean it's just one of those things and as a user of the internet i naturally find myself violating other people's copyrights because i need to know something and there it is yeah yeah but but you know i'm not doing it to um to make a million out of i'm doing it to write into a history yes Um, i mean arguably you could use the defense of
1: uh research private study which is section 29 of the copyright designs and patterns act that does is non-commercial yeah. research so is your yes. research commercial ultimately you're writing a book yeah that is in order to make a living but are you doing it primarily for commercial purposes it's yeah. a question that we in our world we ask all the time and there's Absolutely. no answer to it you all go right. round and round in circles yeah
2: i spend a lot of time in libraries and archives as you can imagine mm-hmm. and and for the last 20 years or so one, one always has to fill out some kind of a disclaimer on arrival mm-hmm. when you start to use the the facility and You've gone all that way to look at whatever it is you've you've pre-ordered and you're anticipating an exciting day of discovery of opening document folders and finding some information that you really need to know. Um, you're not going to sign, you're not going to put on that piece of paper something that's going to block you going in. Mm. You'll say, yeah, yeah, mm. uh, whatever it is, I'll sign it. Mm and and we've all done that all researchers have done that it's just like you're not going to you're not going to deny yourself entry to something but ultimately i am doing it for commercial product mm-hmm. in, in that it goes into a book and the book goes on sale
0: and that is how you make your living which is yeah. you know and but if yeah. you deny
2: researchers and historians and biographers and so on the opportunity to look at pieces of paper and learn from them, then what's the point of a library in the first place? Absolutely. Exactly. No, absolutely.
1: Well, part, that's part of our mission is to try to avoid libraries being so cautious absolutely. because there's such a disparity between libraries as institutions, very cautious. It's all about preservation and making sure. Sh- and then you've got entrepreneurs and businesses for many years and they look at copyright. It's it's weighing up profit and loss, isn't it? Oh, we'll do it. We'll take the risk. And they mm. do it. And we're thinking not that we're suggesting Libraries should operate as commercial entities, or should suddenly throw caution to the wind. But there's got to be a middle ground there when we're actually thinking yes. about how to get the best out of all these uh, fantastic. And primarily yeah.
0: because you know copyright is there, there is balance in the law. That's why we have copyright exceptions that mm. let us let libraries do all sorts of things to preserve collections, but also let researchers, yes, yes. Um, and and people who want to teach and you know yes. study do things. Yes, that we believe, you know, it's about people understanding what they can do not what it kind of locks down yes and protects so much because there's just too much emphasis always on that so there
2: is yes on, on the level of being cautious you yeah know, best best not to invite in the possibility of trouble so we'll just say no mm.
0: yeah
2: mm. Mm. Well, i'm right i have writing this trilogy and um Tune in the first volume, the only one out at the moment was seven hundred and eighty thousand words in its fullest form wow. and it was originally probably i 'm guessing here, but it was originally let's say seven hundred and eighty one thousand words uh, and After delivery, it was read naturally so it was read by the legal three legal mm. people actually for the book publishers, little Brown, which they had to do, and most books are read for legal
0: mm.
2: and um the question of had I cleared the usage of quoting from letters
0: came uh, up yeah.
2: and the Beatles yeah. were in Hamburg in yeah. 1960 61, 62 where they would write home to family or to fans mm. in the case of fans the fans kept the letters and I would meet these fans and they would show me their letters and I would write down or take a photograph or whatever of what it said and then I'd want to quote from it because it was germane to my storytelling yeah. And in like it was a George Harrison letter, the legal person said, have you cleared this with Olivia Harrison, George's widow? And I went, no, I haven't.
0: Mm.
2: Will you clear it? And I went, I don't think I'll get clearance if I ask. And Mm. besides, it'll bog down the process Mm. for months. Potentially, potentially, um, not necessarily, but potentially you don't always get a quick reply. So, uh, no, well, you're going to have to cut it.
1: And that would probably because under UK law, there is a quotation exception, yes. but it has to be for material that has been made publicly available. Yes, So if it hasn't been That's made publicly right. available, then then you can't rely on that exception. However, in the, in the US, they have fair use, which is much broader. And you might actually, you can, it has been shown that you you are legally justifiable in quoting unpublished or unmade available material. But that's where publishers as well can be quite cautious. There's work in our world um, where there's some academics that are challenging that uh, Mm -hmm. and and people that we know um, working on a project, Tanya Raplin, and Emily Hudson, looking at quotation norms in publishing, which is, you know, a bit pointy headed at our side of things. But we're quite keen to say, look, do we really have to have this system that, okay, it's there for sort of, to promote commercial activity and publishing and to support publishing, but it's stopping us from making these things available Mm. and it's scholarship. I mean, even though what you're doing is uh, you're producing books that are sold and that are bestsellers, it's still scholarship. And whether it applies to that or to something which is in a university,
2: open access repository,
1: we've got to have some common principles. Yes.
2: Yes. I know. Uh, In the, in, I remember one letter in particular, it was a brilliant letter that George Harrison wrote to a girl Beatles fan in Liverpool called Sue, Sue Houghton, who had formed herself into a little little group, kind of just in name only, really, at, at, at that point, called the Cement Mixers Guild.
0: And she was known as,
2: <laughs> the Beatles knew her as Sue Cement Mixer. OK. Uh, and um, she went around to George's house while he was away in hamburg and sat with george's parents and george's first car was in the driveway of ford anglia Mm. and she had i I can't remember the exact detail but either she had said to olivia sorry to um louise harrison george's mother can i wash george's car or it had come up as a suggestion somehow rather george harrison wrote to her from hamburg with instructions on how to wash his car and George was very precious about his cars, and it was a new car. Oh, he was a huge petrol head. He wasn't was. He? <laughs> you know, even though this was a Ford Anglia, uh, yeah. not exactly Formula One, but nonetheless, it was a very precious commodity. Um, and so he sent Sue instructions, and it was typically George. It was funny, it was droll, it was dry, it was witty. And it ended up with his instruction that she go and keep all the dirty water that's come off his car, <laughs> take it over to Paul's house, and dump it over Paul's house. <laughs> And I wanted to quote the letter. And Sue still had the letter. And I wanted to quote it. And Sue is a a lovely voice within the book. So it's part of her story as well that she received this letter from George. Um, And I had to cut most of it and paraphrase it. Oh. And I, you know, I could paraphrase it, but I couldn't yeah, yeah. quote his words because I exceeded that limit beyond which the, 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 the legal read was They wanted permission. Yeah. Yeah. And I didn't want to go to Olivia Harrison and ask because I didn't expect I would get a yes. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And
2: well, so I just paraphrased it. We'll have to
1: wait for the reprint at the end of the 21st century after 70 years of okay. elapsed.
2: Mm. And the point is, it would have George would have come. I mean, George comes out of that brilliantly anyway, but yeah, he would have yeah. come yeah. out even more brilliant <laughs> we would have all enjoyed george's humor and all enjoyed everything about that yeah. letter but i had to cut it because it wasn't right mm. but of course as an author myself i don't want people to abuse my copyright no. and no. so there is a, i understand i'm not blind to the, the need for copyright but
1: i mean it was a personal just tri- letter they would just respond to the fans and it was from him to her it wasn't necessarily public property no so you could argue the other way well that that should remain private unless he decided to, to yes. publish it yeah. yes. yes but equally i think it's yeah it's obviously sad that you couldn't
0: get that in. it is yeah. <laughs> it's a great story
1: yes it's a great
2: story. it is now i know we're wrapping up but yes. there is some there yes. is there let me let me extend it just by a couple of minutes because there is something interesting happened in the world of beatles copyright mm. which i think is very newsworthy and somehow not Become a news story. Yet. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah. And I, I, I don't understand why. And we do have a copyright news jingle. But... So I get the jingle out. <laughs> <laughs> jingle away. Copyright news. Copyright news. Copyright news. Copyright news. Copyright news. Copyright news.
3: Copyright news. Copyright news. Copyright news. Copyright
2: news. Copyright. So I didn't quite catch that. Which, which part of the podcast? <laughs> this are we is in the now? this is the copyright news section. I know it's a bit subtle, but there we are. Okay. <laughs> right. Um. As we've discussed, Lennon and McCartney owned their copyrights or half owned their copyrights and then part owned their copyrights and in the end didn't own their copyrights at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were bought in 1969 by Lou Grade or Lou Grade's ATV Music, which mm. got 51% of the shares in Northern Songs and took it off the market, took it off um, the stock market. So it became a privately owned company again, bought in 1980. Four was it by Michael Jackson,
0: mm-hmm.
2: as Paul very humorously says, he, part humour, part anger, I think, understandably. Um, that Michael Jackson, who was cash rich from making thriller, and believe me, by the 1980s, artists really could make proper money from their sales of their records, which wasn't the case so much in the 60s. Mm-hmm. Um Thriller was the best-selling album ever, I think, at that time. And therefore, Michael Jackson was just awash with money. And Paul said, buy music publishing catalogs. It's a great <laughs> investment, because he had. Yeah. yeah. After The Beatles, although he didn't own many of his own songs, he bought others. He, the Buddy Holly catalog is owned by Paul McCartney, yeah. for example. Um, so, um, and Paul was always, you know... And then Michael Jackson... Follows Paul's advice, buys publishing catalogs and buys Paul's. He buys the Lennon and McCartney songs of Northern songs. He bought ATV music, in other words. Um, And then he got into financial difficulties 50% of it was owned by Sony. And then I think when Michael Jackson died, Sony got the rest of it. So the Lennon and McCartney songs in until, which is what I'm coming to until recently have owned, have been owned by Sony or Mm. Sony, however you say it. But There's been a change, and this hasn't made the news. Uh, The fact that they didn't own them made the news a lot, but the fact that there's been a shift hasn't really made the news yet. And the shift is indicated by the copyright credits at the back of Paul McCartney's book of lyrics. Ah, okay. Because the, the book quotes a lot of Paul McCartney's song lyrics from through the years, so they need to have credits at the back of the book. I always look at the credits. I've always been fascinated with copyright credits. Similarly, the Get Back project, which was November of 2021, almost the same time as the book, um, that has credits at the end of every episode that they're very interesting to look at as well. Uh, And the big news that no one's noticed is that Paul McCartney has now got some ownership back of his Beatles songs. This is this is big. Mm-hmm. This yeah, is yeah, big. Yeah. The the copyright credit for songs published up to 1964 is now MPL Communications that that's Paul McCartney's company and Sony Music. Now I don't know if that's, that's a fifty fifty thing. I don't know mm-hmm. what the ratio of ownership is. It could be anything from ninety nine one to fifty fifty, but there is a split now, and this hasn't been made public except that if you look at credits very carefully, you can mm-hmm. see it. Um, administered in the U.S. by NPL Inc. and Sony, administered for the world by Sony. So uh, the world, uh, excluding the U.S., that is, by Sony. So there's there's a carve-up. There's a deal Mm. done here. Paul's people have gone in with Sony's people, and a deal has been done. Uh, Other things as well. Um, Looking at my piece of paper here. I want to hold your hand. The American copyright of that was owned by Leeds Music in the first instance, which a guy called Lou Levy, who picked up the publishing before the Beatles broke America, but he had it. So that huge selling record, four million copies, I think of when I want to hold your hand, was massive for Lou Levy. Who's Lou Levy, people mm. might ask. He eventually sold it to MCA, and I now notice the credit is Songs of Universal, which I think must be what, Lou Levy's company mm-hmm. became for MCA and is now Universal, and Sony, and Paul McCartney. Okay. So he's got a share in I Want to Hold Your Hand as yeah, well. Yeah. Love Me Do, which was Ardmore and Beechwood, an American company that had an English arm, which is instrumental in the Beatles being signed to George Martin in the first place. When Paul McCartney was doing one of his uh, contract negotiations with EMI, for as a recording artist in the 1970s, he said, EMI owned Ardmore and Beechwood. He said, I want the copyright in Love Me Do and PS I Love You, or I'm not signing with you as an artist. And EMI wasn't in the habit of giving away its copyrights, but just went, well, we want Paul McCartney, don't we? <laughs> so they ended up, those two songs were, became MPL communications. Mm-hmm. If you look at reissues of Love Me Do from 82 onwards, it says copyright MPL. Mm. Now it's MPL and Lenono Music. So he's Yoko's lawyer has obviously got involved and said, Hang on a minute, what <laughs> right did you have to buy Lennon and McCartney's song without us knowing it? And I don't think they did, but mm-hmm. I might be wrong on that, but certainly they didn't have a share in it. Yeah. Now they do. So copyrights are ownership is still fluid, it's still yes. shifting around. Yes. And I think that the, the, the You will know better than me, but there's a 56 year rule in America that doesn't apply in the UK Mm -hmm. and possibly not anywhere else because copyright rules are different in every country. Mm -hmm. Isn't there a 56 year rule in America? Copyright in America is fiendishly complicated because up until 1976, they had a
1: process of requirement for registration. Everyone else in the world agreed in 1886 that they wouldn't have that, but America went and did their own thing mm-hmm. throughout the, 19, the, the, the 20th century, which means that you, if you register it and then you have to re-register it, but then different types of work go in and out. So it's, it's, it's really, really complicated. Really complicated. Yeah, and It keeps American it. <laughs> lawyers in an awful lot of uh, yeah. employment. Yeah,
0: yeah. I, just, I can't even remember, but I did a Harvard Law course online a few years ago and that part of it, all the American music yeah. kind of stuff this really really complicated they that's basically what they concluded at
2: the end right so <laughs> good business over there for lawyers then. Yeah. surprise surprise yeah I, I have books here about the the laws in the american music business up to the 1960s mm-hmm. which for the purposes of my own writing is what is I, what you need but since then of course it's yeah. all changed again yeah. Yeah. so let me just extrapolate from this if that 56 year rule applies that will explain why paul has copyright in songs Mm. in beatles songs up to the end of 64 doesn't have sole copyright but he has part and i don't know what yoko's side of things have done because paul can only operate for himself but 1965 beatles songs are going to fall under paul's remit this year right 1966 in 2023 1967 by the time we get to 2027 Paul McCartney will have a stake in all of his Beatles songs again. Mm. Mm. The ones that he arguably hasn't had any kind of control over since 1965 um, will be back under his mm. control or at least some share of the revenue. In, mm. I mean, he's shared in the revenue anyway as a songwriter, yeah. but in terms of the publishing profit, which yeah. will be immense, mm. um, he's going to have that again. So, But I, I yes, imagine for very him interesting. it's less
1: about... Speaking out, living because he's doing fairly <laughs> well. Done uh, lot More about the the principle of it, I guess. He, yes. he used to yes. say.
2: To, he used to make a when Lou Gray before Michael Jackson got them. He used to make a public plea, to, uh, try and embarrass Lou Gray publicly mm. by saying, "Give me back my babies, Lou." Oh, okay. Which of course was never going to happen. Right. Um, and it, those who have studied that period of of the Northern Song saga will tell you that Paul did have an opportunity or two in the 1980s to get it mm-hmm. before Michael Jackson stepped in. Yeah. But for one reason or another, he didn't get mm-hmm. it. But mm-hmm. he could have done. Um, I was actually with Paul on the day when Michael Jackson did the deal with Sony. And that was the day that Paul said in the kitchen of his recording studio, I remember it quite vividly, I'll never get them back now. <gasps> wow. And wow. yet and yet now he has. Yes. How Amazing to be. Yeah. Actually, be there at yeah, that time. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah, yeah, because it was, it was like it, it got taken one further removed from the possibility mm. that day. And I think he'd read it in the news like anybody else had read it in the news. Mm.
1: From my memory, I think there was that McCartney did take legal action in 2018 that precipitated that and was then looking at the right jurisdiction in order to ha- and went to the US in order to take advantage of the duration. Because yes. Because had it happened in the UK in this thing called I can't remember exactly what the legal term is but you look around for the jurisdiction which favours you most and that's where you want to take action and obviously legal, yes. uh, Paul's got pretty good lawyers yeah. So <laughs> I, I think that's what precipitated this <laughs> Copyright fact
3: check I think it's time for Copyright fact check There are some clarifications needed A Copyright fact check I think it's time for Does have to be right. So, the copyright pedant here with a couple of clarifications. The term you were rather desperately searching for is forum shopping, finding the most favourable legal jurisdiction in which to take action. The case was James Paul McCartney versus Sony ATV Publishing from 2017, but Mark is absolutely right that 2018 was the year Paul was able to terminate an assignment of his copyright under the United States 1976 Copyright Act. This allows the original contract to be terminated 56 years after the date it was originally signed, so 1962 through to 2018 is 56 years. That concludes the fact check. Now back to the chat.
1: I I actually hadn't followed what happened next to see that that's how it's manifesting itself, as sort of Paul claiming that stake again
2: to his... uh, And the second second headline that also hasn't been written and made headlines numerous were on whenever Paul McCartney tried to... Reverse the credit on certain Beatles songs to McCartney-Lennon, uh, yes. that made the news. Mm.
1: Yeah,
2: yeah. The fact that he's now done so in his lyrics book hasn't made the news and I don't yeah, know yeah. why I just I don't know why people aren't looking at it somehow no. people aren't noticing what's there literally in black and white but most of the songs in that book are now credited to McCartney-Lennon.
0: That's fascinating yeah. yeah.
2: You're no changing it around when I'm dead <laughs> <laughs>
0: you're assuming you're going yeah. first and I, you know
2: I, I i'm just observing all of this and i i i raise it not in any way to 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 put anybody down or to say well, look mm. what they're up to no, no. Well. it's all there in black and white and all i'm saying is this is interesting it's it is really interesting yeah. isn't it and it mm. talks about
1: the concepts of authorship and ownership and, and how people feel about intellectual property rights and yes. how much mm. You know, to what extent are they your babies or yeah,
2: not? Um, yeah, yeah, uh, So, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, it is, it is.
0: Mark, we've taken up so far uh, more time than <laughs> we'd, uh, uh, you know, told you it was going to be. We did but, indeed. Yeah, I just yeah, wonder yeah.
1: whether I have a little bit of a fanboy moment. Could I possibly get some uh, signatures on this? As you would see, well, from, I went poured through this when I was a teenager, your uh, complete recording sessions. Yes. Um, I've also got this uh, chronicle I don't know whether this is of any interest but actually someone gave me as a gift oh how uh, nice this I've got so I, I so keep this as a, a treasured um, new musical express poll winners all star concert programme and I keep it 1965 rather than, rather than on mm. display I keep in it the in the page
2: where you've chronicled what actually happened at that event stick uh, it in the book as yeah. they say in Liverpool stick it in the book <laughs> um, who who owns the copyright in my signature
1: Uh well, uh, you wouldn't own copyright in it as a literary work. You could argue that your signature is an artistic work, but more likely, you would claim your signature if you stylized it and turned it into an image would be protected by us as a trademark. Right. Yeah.
2: Okay that's interesting i've never thought of the question until now when when you when you sign a book what happens you know yeah so uh, so a a
1: title of the song cannot be protected by copyright um and a name cannot be or a trade name but then so there's often people use copyright in order to enforce industrial rights yes where in fact design rights and trademarks are the appropriate ones but copyright arises automatically so then companies take advantage of that and say, oh, yeah, well, we own copyright in that because then they can easily prove it, whereas trademark requires more and, and patent, patent and other intellectual yes. property rights.
2: Yeah. As I said in TuneIn, um, which I didn't know until I was doing my reading of all the music papers, um, in the year that John and Paul wrote Love Me Do, there was another song called Love Me Do, which, oh, they, no, which yeah. they must have seen. Yeah. Whether they'd heard it, I don't know, but they would have seen it in the music papers mm. as I saw it. how interesting so they kind of took the title yeah (laughs)
1: yeah. but the case law comes from a song called Man from Monte Carlo that was also the title of a film and the two they were saying oh you can't do that that's our title but it's like well you can't have copyright protection for a title
3: (laughs) So, the copyright pedant having to step in here yet again, the song was actually called The Man Who Broke the Bank at Monte Carlo, and it was an 1892 musical song by Fred Gilbert, popularised by singer and comedian Charles Coburn. The song inspired the 1935 US romantic comedy film of the same name, leading to the court case Francis Day and Hunter Limited versus 20th Century Fox Corps, in which the claim of literary infringement failed because the title was insufficiently original and distinctive in its own right. Once again, let the chat resume.
1: Unless it becomes longer and becomes a significant—well, not so any longer, but is a significant original creative work in its own
2: right. So, I mean, I assume that into the latter category would fall something like Monty Python's Flying Circus. I yeah. couldn't, because also that's now trademarks as well. Yes. Of course. It would be the trademark that you would be getting. It would be passing right. off something as an official Monty yeah. Python
1: thing. Yes. It wouldn't be that the copyright protection is an infringement of the creative expression of that. But mm. it would come down to whether that phrase was a su- sufficiently original literary work in its own yeah. right. Which, of course, it is. Yes, I think, I, arguably, yes. it is, yeah. Yes. yeah. yes. OK, I'll sign these, and oh, then I'll have some cake. Yes, yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. And the other thing I this we're slightly overwhelming How deep is your deep is This is no, no, it's it's like, e- the last thing, and I just wanted oh. to say this is probably a piece of deep scholarship that you haven't picked up <laughs> <laughs> as part of your research. Um, but it's yours. I, this is it my is. this is my dissertation. This is my uh, when I was back in University of Glamorgan great that's institution an undergraduate. doing communication studies okay, a, a comparative study of the youth of the 1960s and the 1990s and their understandings of the meanings of the Beatles music so I did some interviews here with people empirical interviews and if we flip through to the bibliography uh there we go oh there's my name yeah that's nice yeah. to see very if, good it was uh
0: well you're planning to digitize that aren't you I so am if, going to if you are interested Mark, yes I'm interested then, um, Chris could
2: send you a copy of it I'm interested because it says on the front that you spoke to you, some youth of the 1960s mm-hmm. so mm. yes that interests I can't me. reveal of course who the interview subjects were because that's not what
1: researchers do but mums are well, very you know handy mom sometimes mum 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 where were you when you heard she <laughs> loves
2: you <laughs>
0: So our
1: podcast has come to its end And we know you have to go
3: You only set aside an hour for this But there's one more gift we'd like to
0: bestow
3: One last
0: thing Some
3: nerdy chatter You've had enough Of that bad.
0: Showing really what makes him such a great researcher. Uh, Really interesting to see how he got straight to the heart of how you did your research.
1: Well, I really can't, for ethical reasons, divulge exactly who it was I spoke to. But, you know, he seemed to have some insights there, didn't he? (laughs) Uh, But what an honour to speak to him, clearly. But also, he, he was interested enough in my dissertation that he wanted the digital version. And has now been added to his archive.
0: Yeah, amazing.
1: So... Thank you to Mark Lewison, again, for giving us so much of his time, particularly how time is so tight with Mm. this gargantuan mammoth task that he's got to create this definitive history of the Beatles.
0: Yeah, and thank you to everyone who made it to the end of this podcast. We are actually really hoping to see what we can do in the coming months and years to help him find the right home for his archive. It's such a special collection as well. It really was an honour, actually, to see all the 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 things that he's collected together and
1: uh, and as he said you know that what we saw the paper the printed material is only the tip of the iceberg the amount of digital material
0: yeah
1: um, and clearly making that stuff available as we spoke to him would be a technical and a legal challenge Mm. but uh you know it's certainly something we'd want to do as much as we can to help yeah so what did we learn from speaking to mark I think we both agree that going Deep Beetle is a is a great source of joy.
0: Absolutely, yes. Yes, I was only in the shallows, and uh, I think I'm quite definitely ready to go Deep Beetle. Started watching Get Back now, and really mm-hmm. enjoying it, and uh, it's, you know, it's just a fascinating insight, I think, into the social history of Britain in the 1960s, the music industry, but also kind of you know just uh, it's about people isn't it so yep. it's always fascinating and the nature
1: of creative endeavor Yeah. i think that's the thing that really gets us interested in copyright it's how it impacts on creativity and and we see and get back that actually it can be quite a you know
0: intense process <laughs> it's
1: quite intense it's not always that glamorous but there's just those moments of magic yeah so thank you again mark uh thank you to everyone listening and we will be uh We've got some more interesting podcasts lined up for Coming anyone up soon. Who's, yeah. who's a new listener. So hope to uh, see you here again on Copyright Waffle.
2: It's not legal advice, but it will have to suffice because it's Copyright Waffle, Copyright
0: Waffle, Copyright Waffle.